All right, let's go ahead and begin with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, excuse me. O God, the giver of all that is good, by your holy inspiration, grant that we may think those things that are right, and by your, your merciful guiding, accomplish them. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you, um, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. All right, so Romans uh, study number three. We are uh, talking about God's righteousness primarily today. Um, looks like, yeah, looks like some people have filled in some blanks. I like that. I like seeing that. We're going to have a good discussion, I can tell. All right, so study three, God's righteousness. Let's just dive right in. After, um, actually, you know what? How about let's have somebody else read this? Uh, who would like to read that first part before we get to that first question? I'll go for it. Go ahead. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> After med meditating on the words, God's righteousness, Dr. Martin Luther King or Martin Luther King. Dr. Martin Luther King. Yeah, I was about to say, you can't get that one right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> oh, you got to get that one right. <laughs> now that that's out. Yeah. That's Dr. Great. Martin Luther came to a life-changing conclusion. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith, as it is written, he who through faith is right, his righteousness shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. There a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. Thereupon, I ran through the scriptures from memory. I also found in other terms an analogy as the word of God, that is, what God does in us, the power of God, with which he makes us wise, the strength of God, the salvation of God, the glory of God. And I extolled my sweet, my sweetest word with a love as great as the hatred with, with which I had before hated the word, righteousness of God. Thus that place in Paul was for me truly the gate to paradise. All right. So before we get into that first question, um, do y'all know why uh, he hated the word, the righteousness of God? You have an idea? I, from what I understand from Martin Luther, yeah. he, the way the Catholic Church was teaching, mm -hmm. being righteous, mm -hmm. he was conflicted, mm -hmm. or he was having an internal struggle with God because he literally could not do enough to be righteous in, in front of God. So therefore he said he hated God yeah. because he couldn't do enough. Right. There, there was such a, 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 a huge amount of uh, guilt placed on Luther. Uh, you know, other people at that time probably felt, well, you know, if you've seen the movie uh, Luther with the, one of the Fines brothers, I can't, I can never remember which one, but you know, it's the one that Thrive had put out back in early 2000s, um, his father confessor was basically like, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. You're too hard on yourself. But 
he was trying. He was trying to fulfill the law. And Luther had, had this saying where he says, uh, the law says do, and it is never done. Uh, and so the, the law, um, he was taught that you should do. And that's what makes you righteous. So whenever he saw the righteousness of God, he always thought to him, he, he always hated that. And, and he admitted that he hated God because of it, because he felt like God was a tyrant. But as soon as he saw, and but, well, he, he read this over and over and over again, I'm sure. But when he really pondered it, and it's not that he saw it, but the Holy Spirit revealed to him through the word that he he who through faith is righteousness shall live that faith was the thing that he was missing the whole time right so therefore with all the love that he were with all the hatred that he had for it now it was switched to love because it was so freeing right and we're going to talk more about what that means uh with the righteousness of god as we go on here so before we do that before studying what paul means by righteous discuss how people commonly use this word today what does it mean to them and to you and who is a righteous person so let's begin with that first one how do people commonly use the word righteous today i put they use it kind of as a condemning term oh, okay they usually put okay. self in front of them right uh-huh yeah they're so self-righteous uh something like that yep that's one of them um, anybody else have any ideas about how righteous is used today commonly? It's what they can do, what I'm doing. Okay, so again... So I can be righteous. Yeah, so kind of a negative... <laughs> works righteous, self-righteous. Yeah, of course. Um, so what does it mean to you? What does righteous mean to you? When you just first see that word. God-fearing. God-fearing? Yeah, that's, that's, I think that's a good one. Yeah, definitely. One who is saved. Okay, yeah, one one who is saved. Righteous uh, person is saved. Yeah, okay. Justified. Mm-hmm. In fact, righteousness and justified mean the same word in Greek, actually. Dikaiosune, uh, like, in, in, my, in my New King James, instead of verse 17 saying, the righteous shall live by faith, the New King James says, the just shall live by faith. So it's like someone who's justified. It's the exact same thing. Different kind of angle. But yeah. Any other thoughts on that? Any, uh, what does righteous mean to you? I wrote down it's an unattainable goal that I can't reach by myself. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah we can reach, but just not by ourselves. Right. That's what he said. Well, it's, it's, <laughs> I know. we'll go, yeah, we'll get into that for sure. Um, well, I, we, we are. Yeah. <laughs> we are already justified. Right. Yes. Yeah. We'll look in. Yeah. We'll well, definitely yeah, you can there. see uh, it's not a whole lot different than what Luther was, was mm -hmm. reading. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Because you can read it that way, and as long as you're stuck in that dynamic or that, me, me mode, that, mean, that meaning, like I have to do something yeah, to gain yeah. it. Yeah, you can see that. And I think it's really, you know, I've never seen this, this from Doc, from, uh, Martin Luther before, but mm -hmm. um, it's it's really pretty interesting mm -hmm. because it's it's a perspective issue that he went through and looked, and I'm sure he knew the Bible backwards and forwards, but he saw it for the first time. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he said that he went through all he went through the scriptures from from memory, memory right? Because because mm-hmm. at this point in time, he had probably memorized the entire the entirety of the Psalms because of, he was a monk, right? And they sang mm-hmm. pretty much sang the whole book of Psalms like every day, if not once a week. So he knew the Psalms, he knew all the scriptures of what they said, and but this made all the difference, right? This this one bit made all the difference. Um, but yeah, so in, in, in popular culture, what is, I guess, a righteous person? And what would, what would the world say a righteous person is? Someone who does good works. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's okay. what I put down here. Someone yeah. who does acts of like unselfishness. Yeah. If you were to outwardly look at it that way. Yeah. Some people would like, oh, they give to charity. You know, they help out here. They don't do this. They don't do that. Fill in the blank. Whatever you think is the bad thing, right? Um, so yeah, people who live a good life. You know, righteousness is ascribed to people who do good things, not bad things, right? Um, uh, but that's inherently works righteous in a way, right? Well, we'll get into that though. So Paul presents God's righteousness as the most important truth. In this thematic verse, that's verse 17, chapter 1, and throughout the letter to the Romans, he uses the word righteousness in and, and, and related terms about 60 times. So obviously it matters, right? To understand what Paul means by God's righteousness, study and summarize three key verses. So for, and while we do this, let's, let's actually turn there. Romans 1, 17, uh, for in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Um, how would you summarize that verse? Verse 17. By faith. Mm-hmm. You, okay. What is, what is by faith? Righteousness. Yeah. God's righteousness. And faith, and faith in what? Christ. Right. That's right. And and I'm a stickler for this. And, and those of you who don't know that will learn it, that I'm kind of a stickler that whenever we talk about faith, faith requires something to hold on to. You, know, you can't just say, I have faith. I have faith. What is your faith in? You know, my faith is in God. That's my promise. faith is in this person to do what I ask them to do. My faith is in, you know, my job. That's probably a bad thing. But, you know, it's, it's like faith and trust requires, requires an object to hold on to. Faith always requires an object. So whenever we talk about faith, we should really get into that habit of saying and completing the, the no-brainer, faith in Christ, faith in God, you know, faith in what he does for me. So, so on and so forth. Let's get into that habit because the more we're in that habit, the more we can actually really deliver the goods. Because I think a lot of people talk about faith, but they're missing the object. Let's talk about the object. Who is the object of our faith? Christ. Jesus Christ. That's right. Yeah, that's why we're Christians. So righteousness comes by faith in Christ. Absolutely. Uh, how about chapter 3, verse 21? Let's turn there real quick. Chapter 3, verse 21 reads, uh, But now the righteousness of God has been 
manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. How would you summarize that? What did y'all have for that one? I put righteousness happens apart from the law, and the, the law shows that. Yeah, isn't that funny? Um, isn't that kind of funny how uh, there's two mentions of the law, that righteousness has been, been manifested apart from the law, and yet the law says that it's so. <laughs> it's kind of funny how that works out, right? So yeah, does anybody else have something else that they put? Any other summarizing of that verse? Yeah, James? I extended it to verse 22, through, okay. through faith. Okay. In Jesus Christ. Yes, right. Yes. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you, Thank you Yeah, you got that one good. That's good. Yeah. That's right. And it's, that's exactly right. Through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's right. So, yes. So where does righteousness come from? Or rather... Where doesn't righteousness come from? From us. Yeah, specifically from this verse, what is what does Paul say righteousness does not come from though? The law. The law. The law. That's right. And the prophets. That yeah, the law and the prophets bear witness to the fact that nobody can fulfill the righteousness of God through the law. That's right. The prophets, that's all they did. They would always preach. Uh, for people to stop sinning, to stop breaking the law, right? Repent, repent, repent. That's why they weren't very popular. Uh, and that's also why sometimes pastors are not very popular. We kind of fill that office as well sometimes. So righteousness does not come from the law, right? Um, how, about, how about chapter 10, verse 3? Let's just go there real quick. Chapter 10, verse 3 says, For being... Uh, for being um, ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, that is their own righteousness, right? They did not su submit to God's righteousness. How would you summarize that? To me, it says they thought they didn't need God to do it. It was actions that they were going to do. Okay. And they were going to be responsible for their own. Sure. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anybody else have something like that or have something similar or different? Anybody get anything different than that? No? It's kind of similar to what India said there? Uh, let me ask you, India, who's they that you put there? Who's, who's they? Just anybody who was trying to accomplish that goal. Okay. Yeah, specifically in this passage, Paul's talking about who? The yeah, Romans. Uh, Say the Jews. The Jews, that's right. Oh, uh, okay, I had to backtrack. A that's okay, bit. yeah. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that's the Jews, right, is that they may be saved. Okay. And uh, for Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness to everyone who believes. And then he goes on about what Moses writes, right? Um, but this could be applied to anybody, anybody that does not believe, right? Anybody who has not been made righteous through the gift of faith. Uh, yeah, fallen man doesn't submit to God's righteousness. 
but he tries to create his own righteousness. But apart from faith, we're always trying to self-justify in some way. Um, you know, it's like somebody, somebody who might come to me. I haven't had this ha had this happen yet. Might happen someday, I'm sure, if I stay a pastor for a long time. <laughs> somebody might come to me and say, you know, Pastor, I, I, I know I haven't been in church for several years, but I pray all the time. That's nice, but that's self-justification, right? That is thinking that you're saved by your works of prayer, um, but that's not really how it works. Of course, I wouldn't necessarily say that. I'd probably say, well, that's great. Maybe you can join us in church because we pray there too, you know, something like that. I'm, maybe that's a little too sassy for some people. But maybe I might also say, well, that's great, but we'd love to see you at church, right? We'd love to see you come back. It's never too late. It's never, you can't be gone for long enough to where we won't be happy that you're here, right? Something like that. But it's in, in the end, you can't get around it. It's, it's self-justification. And that could be explanations for all kinds of stuff, right? It's like, oh, I, I don't know. You'll... People have all kinds of excuses for lying, for cheating, for whatever. It's because I tried. Since I tried, it should yeah. be okay. I gave it the good old college try, you know? Yeah. yeah. I tried, but I just couldn't make it happen. And it's like, well, see how that works with your taxes. And I'm not yeah. sure you'll get away with it, right? Um, something like that. So, yeah, fallen man doesn't submit willingly on his own to God's righteousness. He tries to create his own righteousness. He's always trying to self-justify and make excuses for himself, right? So, um, yeah. All a man doesn't submit to much at all. Um, That's true. And it's tough to submit. So it's even tough to submit to God mm. to righteousness. Got that little word caught. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny is that like fallen man might think that he doesn't submit, but he's submitting to his own lustful desires ultimately, right? I mean, it's it's kind of like we talked about last time about how. Well, I meant submit to another. Right. Yeah. To something else. To something else. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. You're you're exactly right. But I think that the fallen man is fooled into thinking that he's not actually submitting to anything, but really he is, right? He's submitting to his own sinful will. Uh, and that's why, you know, when we talked last time about, or one of those times about how Paul makes a big deal about saying that he's a slave of Jesus Christ, and you're either a slave of Christ or you're a slave to sin. There's really no in-between. And fallen man doesn't think he's a slave to sin, and that's part of the problem. Um, and in that sinful pride, seeing submission to Christ seems unthinkable. Unthinkable, right? I think fallen man thinks he's his own master. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like that Invictus poem or whatever. I am, the, I am the captain of my soul or whatever that is. Anytime somebody quotes that, I just, I just cringe a little bit. I'm just like, oh, man, that's just not how it works. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, we have to learn to be still. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes like a, and I, yeah, and, and sometimes God, our Father, has to hold us still at times, right? It's kind of what you have to do with your own kids from time to time, I'm sure. Um, all right, so let's, let's, let's keep rolling on here. There are 
uh, four primary ways that righteousness of God is understood by interpreters. Uh, one, as an attribute of God. That's uh, like the faithfulness that belongs to God. Two, as a status given by God. That is uh, the, um, the alien righteousness from God given by judicial declaration, similar to a judge declaring someone not guilty. Uh, three, as an activity of God, that is the saving action of God. Or four, as a combination of the above. Martin Luther uh, certainly championed the second option and had a profound impact on Lutheran interpretation of Romans 1.17. But there is also merit to the notion that a combination of options two and three can give us a fuller understanding of what Paul means by God's righteousness. Um, at this point in studying Romans, you need to learn a distinction used by many interpreters. At first, this distinction may be confusing, but be patient. Your understanding of Paul's letter and the central teaching of Christianity depends on this point. So begin by reading about universal justification and individual justification in the glossary on page 80. Uh, so page 80, the glossary. Um, And, and, and it, what makes this even more confusing is that we have different terms for these things, you know, so it's always fun. Um, so, okay, individual justification, the individual application of justification for a person when he or she comes to faith through the gospel or through baptism. This is sometimes called subjective justification, right? Now, at the very bottom, you'll see universal justification. Because of the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus, God declares all sinners righteous. But universal justification is not the same as universalism, the false teaching that all will be saved no matter what they believe. Okay? And universal justification is sometimes called objective justification. So stick with these terms. They can get a little confusing. If you have any questions about these, um, as as we go along, just let me know. I mean, do, do those terms make sense to you right now? Do I need to explain them a little bit more, or do y'all do do have any questions about one or the other or both? No. I don't think I do. Okay. Universalism. Yeah. I think of something like, you know, all dogs go to heaven. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> all roads lead to the same destination kind of thing. All, all roads lead to Rome kind of thing like that, right? Um, yeah, and that is not what universal justification is. Um, if I can simplify it even more, which I might just wind up confusing y'all even more, um, universal justification is this free gift that's out there for all people, Christ died for all. Uh, he didn't just die for some or a few or the chosen or the elect or whatever. He died for all people so that all might, might be saved. Yet that gift is not received in its benefits until one receives faith that it's true. Right? That's uh, well, so, how individual justification. That's right. The individual or the subjective justification is that the individual realizes Oh, Jesus died for all, and that includes me. 
right? That's the individual part. That's the subjective part. Yeah. So when in the Oxford Confession, Article 4, when it says we are justified by faith, mm -hmm. that would be individual justification? Yes, I believe so. Um, off the top of my head, I think. And that Article 4 is that doctrine that on which we say the church either stands or falls, right? Justification by faith is uh, if you if you don't have it, you're not the church. If you do have it, you are the church. You know, so it's one of those things. That part is, I believe, speaking of that individual justification subjectively. Yeah. Um, it's your old free will deal, huh? Yeah, we're not going to go into that right now. <laughs> you know, the, the whole the whole free free will to either believe or not believe. We'll we'll touch on that actually in this next part right here. So unless I don't have any questions about those terms, we'll we'll just keep rolling on. Okay. Um, so on page fifteen, there interpreters have long debated what Paul means by God's righteousness or the doctrine of justification. In Greek, righteousness and justification come from the same root, dikaiosune. Uh, this debate has continued, especially since Martin Luther and the Reformation lifted up justification as the central teaching of the Scriptures. Many interpreters focus exclusively on the teaching in Romans concerning individual justification. When interpreters make justification a conditional offer from God, they teach that God doesn't declare people righteous until they believe. In other words, teaching individual justification alone can imply that one, man must offer something to God for his salvation, two, uh, sinful humans are spiritually capable of working with God to justify themselves. And three, faith is not God's gift through the word. Okay? Focusing exclusively on individual justification runs the risk of making people into their own saviors. And this is why we have such a problem with free will Baptists and the like that will say it's all about your decision. You know, make a decision for Christ. And so in that sense, you are, they're focusing more or solely on individual justification, and it follows that line, right? That one, man must offer something to God for his salvation. Offer your heart to God, and he will save you, or offer your testimony, and, and he will save you, right? That sort of thing. Um, uh, two, sinful humans are spiritually capable of working with God to justify themselves, that we actually have a will that is free to believe, but we don't. Our wills are bound to sin. Um, that, that in and of ourselves, we don't have the capability to actually make that decision for Jesus. That the Holy Spirit has to bring us to life as a gift from God to actually believe. And that only comes about by the Word of God and the Gospel, right? That's the only way it happens. It's all God's work. Faith is a gift. Grace is a gift. It's all a gift. We don't do anything for our salvation, even make a decision with our own quote-unquote free will, right? Our wills are bound by themselves to sin, and they're only freed truly by the gospel. And that's solely a work of God in and of itself. Because if you... Uh, if you see it as you playing any role in your salvation, um, then faith is not God's gift through the word. 
It's, it's, it's just not because you did something to believe, right? Um, but where the individual justification definition right. comes in because that's right. it says when he or she comes to faith through the gospel or through baptism. Right. And baptism is a, yeah, we could go into that some, other t- some more some other time. Baptism is uh, all part and parcel of the way that we receive the good gifts of God, for well, sure. That's why we baptize them. Babies. That's they're exactly not right. Making, they're not making a conscious decision. Well, yeah, it, yeah, because it's not they're, about they're, get, they're giving the gift. Right, exactly. It's pure gift. Pure gift. Uh, it's like it's like we'll the par- that, yeah. yeah, it's like the paralytic who was brought by his friends to Jesus that they had to pull the tiles off the roof and like lower him down. He couldn't walk there himself. He had to be brought. Right? Um, and we'll go into that some other time about baptism, I'm sure. Uh, but it's a pure gift. You're right. So, um, focusing exclusively on individual justification runs the risk of making people into their own saviors. And you get that in the making a decision language, decision theology, because then it'll be all about your testimony. And when you made a decision for Christ, I heard that a lot from a lot of people. So um, It's like they're trying to take credit for. And I don't think they mean to. That's the sad thing. I don't think they mean to take credit but at the same time, that's a big part of their conversion experience. So it's part of their culture that they grew up in. So, yeah. Um, Paul's emphasis on faith certainly brings attention to individual justification in Romans, already apparent in chapter 1. Through faith, for faith, the one who is righteous by faith. However, Paul's understanding of the universal character of the righteousness of God needs more attention from interpreters. So the background for Paul's understanding of God's righteousness is surely to be found in the Old Testament, especially in Isaiah. So look up the following verses in Isaiah. Let's actually do that. Turn to Isaiah 46, verses 12 through 13. Um, We'll have someone read that for us. Isaiah 46, verses 12 through 13. And then we will note how they use the word righteousness, especially in relation to salvation. So who'd like to read that one for us? I'll read it. Okay. 12 through 14. 12 through 13. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Listen to me, stubborn-hearted, you who are far from righteousness. I am I'm bringing my righteousness near. It is not far away, and my salvation will not be delayed. I will grant salvation to Zion, my splendor to Israel. Okay. So how is um, how are these verses using the word righteousness in relation to salvation? They're coming together. Yeah. It's um, more like forgiveness. I'm bringing you my forgiveness. Mm-hmm. There's 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 synonymous there in some ways, but yeah, they're they're coming together. That righteousness and salvation go hand in hand and can't be separated, right? So when he says, "You who are far from righteousness, I bring near my righteousness, and my salvation will not delay," they both come together. Right? You can't separate the two. Um, uh, yeah. I will put I will put salvation in Zion for Israel my glory. Yeah. All right. Any other thoughts on that? 
Anybody get anything else different? I felt he was kind of using it as like a judgment. Like I am bringing my righteousness. To you who is hard-hearted? Yeah, who are, yeah hard-hearted, stubborn of heart. Um, yes, that is kind of a judgment as well because uh, when, when you... It just makes me think of how the righteousness is revealed in the gospel. But in the gospel, there is also condemnation for unbelief, right? That if someone looks at the cross of Jesus Christ and says, that's not for me, well, that's not a good thing. That's condemnation, right? There. Well, the righteousness is there, but you choose to reject it. That's right. They reject it. So it's like the other side of that coin is the refusal to accept it. It's there all around. The you don't have to accept it. Yeah, that's right. The universal justification is there, but you don't care enough and you don't receive the... or it's Whatever hardness of heart, whatever contamination of the heart there is, keeps you from receiving the individual justification on that, on that side of things. Right? So yeah, so on some level, it can be a judgment if you remain stubborn-hearted, right? If you reject the gospel, Okay. Um, how about Isaiah 51, verses 5 through 6? And have someone read that one for us, too. Five through six. Mm-hmm. My righteousness draws near speedily. My salvation is on the way, and my arm will bring justice to the nations. The islands will look to me and wait in hope for my arm. Lift up your eyes to the heavens. Look at the earth beneath. The heavens will vanish like smoke, and the earth will wear out like a garment, and its inhabitants die like flies. But my salvation will last forever. My righteousness will never fade. Okay, so how is righteousness uh, spoken of here in term in, in relation to salvation? I felt it was used as forgiveness and love. And it's eternal. And okay. it's eternal. You're yeah. Be forgiveness. Lasts forever. Forgiveness it's eternal. Forever. Absolutely. It will not be abolished. Mm-hmm. Um, what translation is that that says, like flies? NIV. The NIV. It's a new international version. Yeah. yeah if, I'm trying to get the, my hands on the English standard. Yeah, that's the interpretation says it will die in like manner. Yeah, and then there's a. That's powerful. There's a yeah, there's a there's a footnote there in the in the Lutheran Study Bible. There's a footnote there, number two, and it says, "Or will die like gnats." So something, yeah, something like okay, that. You don't want bugs. <laughs> so okay. So so God's righteousness and salvation will last forever. We said that it will not be abolished. Uh, who brings the righteousness and salvation? Who brings it, according to these verses? The Lord in heaven. That's right. Christ? Yeah, God, generally, right? Yes, Uh, he says, My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the people's... um, uh, yeah, my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. 
So it's all proceeding from God himself. The people themselves do not proclaim righteousness or salvation on themselves apart from him. Any other thoughts on that? Questions? I have that righteousness is coming not only with salvation, but also with justice and hope. Right. And justice also has two sides of it, right? Um, people, People sometimes think, how can God be a loving God if he also can condemn people? It's like, well, he's not just loving, he's also righteous and just. Yeah, that there is punishment for unbelief, and that's part of the message. We can't just focus on forgiveness when you don't focus on what needs to be forgiven, right? There's two sides that need to be uh, um, properly distinguished from each other, right? And emphasized. Um, How about let's go to Isaiah 45. Go back a little bit. Isaiah 45, verses 22 through 25, and we'll have somebody read that for us as well. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, for my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Okay. So how is word is the word righteousness used in relation to salvation here? It comes from the word. Where did you get that specifically with the word? righteousness is coming out from my mouth. From my mouth, okay. I was wondering, yeah. And, and a word that shall not return. Yeah, okay. So the righteousness comes from... The Lord. Only the Lord. Yeah, the Lord, His word. How are you to know unless you have heard? Right? That's, I mean, that's, that's why we have the prophetic office. Isaiah spoke this to people, right? So that's, that's part of it. I think it's a good thing to focus on for sure. Um, anybody else have something for that? Don't be shy. I had purity, forgiveness, and innocence. Is how righteousness is used mm-hmm. in relation to salvation. Mm-hmm. So you said you said what now again? Um, there's purity, purity, there's forgiveness, forgiveness, innocence. innocence. When you come to me, you're gonna receive these things. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, There's no other way to be saved except through me. Right, because who who is ultimately righteous? God is, right? God is ultimately righteous. Only he is righteous. Uh, yet at the same time, Israel is found righteous in him. And by Israel, we mean those who have faith. Right, those who believe in the promises of God, uh, who are of their father Abraham by faith, right? So yeah, definitely. Um, 
All right. Any other thoughts on that before we move on? No? Okay. So, uh, that next part here on page 15. The Bible does not describe the righteousness of God as an abstract concept or attribute of God. Instead, these words identify God's saving action that will be revealed in the latter days in his servant. You would say that's Christ, right? Furthermore, Isaiah 45 demonstrates that the coming of this righteousness of God will result in a changed status for the seed of Israel. God will declare them righteous. Paul uses God's righteousness in a very similar manner to Isaiah. The righteousness of God is God's saving action in Christ that has resulted in a changed status. God declares all sinners righteous based on the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus. You see that in universal justification, right? This changed status is a forensic or, or legal status grounded in God's action in Christ. It is not a moral status that is grounded in human goodness, as we see in Roman Catholicism. Right? In other words, you cannot make yourself righteous. God alone declares a person righteous. Uh, this righteousness of God, this saving action in Christ that has resulted in the changed status of sinners is being revealed in the gospel. The gospel reveals Christ in action to save the world. The gospel is the power of God because in it the saving action in Christ has changed the legal status of, of sinners before God. The gospel creates and sustains faith that receives the, the benefits of this action and status. You see that in, in um, subjective or, or individual justification. Therefore, justification is not only a consequence of the gospel, but, also, but is also the content of the gospel. Okay? So universal justification and, and individual justification go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. So in verse 25, which we just read, uh -huh. is the tense important? In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and no, shall glory. It doesn't say they're justified. It says they shall be justified. Is that a promise of a Savior? Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, I'd have to look closer. It would have been tough looking on those days. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, they're always... That's what their faith was, right? Yeah, their, their faith, faith was, was always looking of... forward to the promise to be fulfilled. Yeah, waiting for the Messiah to come. That's that's how. I mean, that's that's the same thing with Abraham, right? He was told that he would have uh, descendants that would uh, rival the number of the stars in the sky and the sand and the sea, you know. But he didn't see it. It was promised, and he trusted in that promise, right? Uh, it wasn't yet fulfilled. So I think the tense does matter there, that, that, that uh, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Um, yeah, I think that's... So the status, their status hasn't changed. 
Um, actually, in some ways, it, it or the prop, or if they believe in the promise has changed. If they believe in the promise, then it has changed. Yes, I think I think because true. because for us, we're still waiting for the fulfillment of time to come when Christ returns. Right. So in that day, we we are justified right now, and yet mysteriously, we will be more fully justified on that last day when Christ comes back. So we are still looking forward to the fullness of uh, the promise uh, to be fulfilled. Um, The promise is ours, and we have it right now, but it has yet to be delivered in its fullness. It's interesting that became a stumbling block for the the uh, Jewish leadership, I guess. Which part? The well, that uh, as long as there was a promise, people looked for that. Once the promise was fulfilled, what do you do? What do you do? Get rid of job. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, and I mean, that was way, yeah. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's true. No, and that was the biggest. That was the first controversy the church dealt with in the book of Acts at the first uh, council of Jerusalem. They're like, what do we do now with these Gentiles? They're basically worshiping the tradition. Yeah, it's like, what do we do now that the Christ has come? Do we adhere to the old ceremonial law that foreshadowed the coming of the Christ? It was just all these questions needed to be answered, and, and they had them answered in that first council in Jerusalem that we have recorded in the book of Acts. So yeah, that, that is a big question. What do we do now? We've spent thousands and thousands of years waiting, and now he has come, and he has ascended. <laughs> what do we do now? <laughs> what do we do now? Right? Yeah, of, of course. That would, that would be a big issue to solve for them, I'm sure. And it has yet to be resolved for those who continue to deny that the Messiah has come. Right? In... Uh, Judaism so yeah so we pray that they would be converted and see that the promise has been fulfilled right Um, okay so then we see here this this example for example imagine yourself standing before a judge right this is kind of a way we see about universal uh, and uh, uh, universal um, justification and the individual justification, right? This courtroom scene. Imagine yourself standing before a judge. He has heard your case. He's about to pronounce the, the verdict. When the judge declares, I find you not guilty, his words do three things. They proclaim a, a, they proclaim a message of not guilty. They perform the action of releasing you from guilt. And they bestow a new status of freedom from condemnation. Before we move on to that next part where we ask about words and what they do, um, I want to flesh this out a little bit more for y'all because I think for all of us who like to watch, you know, like true crime, courtroom dramas and things like that, you've all seen it where the guy has been falsely accused or maybe, you know, whatever. He's gone through the rigmarole of being accused of this crime. He's been punished for it in some ways or another, you know, or and, and he's just gone through turmoil wanting this to get resolved. And he's having, to, and he's just anxious, anticipatory, waiting to hear what's going to happen. And then all of a sudden when he hears 
not guilty. He just collapses and his lawyers have to hold him up because the weight has just been taken off of him and he can't do anything but just collapse, right? That's what it means in some sense to believe the gospel. The weight of sin has been taken off your shoulders and all you can do is just collapse because it, the burden was just too much to bear in the first place. And in the same way, there's the other side, right? We've been talking about two sides of the same coin, that if you don't believe the judge, let's just say that you have this guy who's standing there and all of a sudden the judge says, not guilty, you're free to go. And then the guy starts going, who do you think you are telling me what I'm supposed to do? I get to decide my own life. You don't say nothing to me for nothing, blah, 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 blah. Shooting his mouth off at the judge. What's the judge going to do? I hold you in contempt. Go to jail. Right? And, or, or in some ways, some people might say, some people might not be that blatant and in the realm of faith and trust in Christ. Some people may hear the gospel, the verdict, you're not guilty. And they'll say, um, so what? And that's the same thing as saying, okay, okay, yeah, okay, whatever, thanks. And going to the bailiff and saying, all right, I'd like to go back to my cell now. <laughs> right? They are holding themselves in contempt. They're putting themselves back in the prison of sin and the bondage of sin. Right? They are rejecting the verdict of not guilty. And they're saying, no, thanks. I think I'll just go back to prison where I can then justify myself for all the bad things that happen in prison, right? And become more deadened in my conscience as a result. You know, I can I can go and do whatever in prison and no one's really going to do anything about it. I'm not going to be in trouble. Right? So that's the other side of it that we also, that, that might help explain just the dynamics of what it means to be justified and either believe or not. Right? Any have any questions about that or anything you want to add to that? Something to think about, right? Have you thought about this? Who, by the way. That's a good illustration. Okay, good. I'm glad you think so. I, who in their right mind would say, no thanks, I don't care about being uh, <laughs> declared not guilty, sent me back to myself? Who wouldn't want to get out? But that's the depth of our depravity and sin sometimes for some people. They're just so far gone. Their hearts are so hardened. Their conscience are so dulled and deadened. They just don't care. Uh, but that's, that's all part of also continuously coming to them with the word that one day there may be the case that the Holy Spirit will turn their heart of stone into a heart of flesh. Right? Someday it might sink in, and the Word is the only thing that can do it by the power of the Holy Spirit, right? So don't give up on people, necessarily, is what I'm saying, if they don't get it the first time around. They may just need to be guided a little bit, prayed for, all these things that go along with that, okay? Um, all right. Uh, how about so? But with that, with the not guilty verdict and the declaration of not guilty, those words aren't just information, right? They do things. So, how about on that next page? What are some other words or phrases that have the power to do what they say? And you see a hint there: marriages, installations, oaths. Yeah, for you married folks, hint. 
what is it something that you said that actually has the power to do what you say? What do you say when you get married? Oh, help me God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I promise. Yeah. I promise when you say the vows, you say, I will, I do, right? Yeah, I take you to be my, you know, lawfully wedded husband or wife. Um, I promise to love our own chair. Yeah, to have, yeah, mm-hmm. to, uh, in sickness and in health, right? Mm-hmm. For richer, for poorer, right? Um, how about, how about in an installation? Like, so whenever we install congregational officers, mm-hmm. uh, what do I usually, I, I usually go through a list of things, the duties of the congregational officers, and then I say, you know, do you promise to do these things? If so, say what? I do with the help of God, right? Right. So help me God, as it were. And, and even if, if, if you're being sworn in as a witness giving testimony, you say what? I swear. I swear. To tell the whole truth. Nothing to truth. Yeah, to, to tell the whole truth. Tell the nothing, truth, the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. truth. But the truth. So, so help me God. Right? Wonder they still say that. Mm-hmm. I think so, yeah. When you get sworn in, before you say Well, you, either, either you say it or they say it for you. That part, part probably doesn't get televised. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but who cares nowadays? I mean, it's good. <laughs> it's one of those things that just like why would they even care nowadays they don't care about a lot of other things so yeah. Um, but yeah so you say um, I swear I, I, I do these things uh, I promise to do these things uh, what is what does a pastor say what what, what yes <laughs> as a called and ordained servant of the word I, uh, I you know uh, in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's not just information, right? It's doing something. That is the pronouncement of not guilty, right? And therefore, I, I, w- I would love to see everybody in the congregation just go, oh, good. You know, just collapsing under their own weight because it's like, oh, thank you, thank you. Take a little deep breath after that. Right, yeah. Relax. Yeah, right. Yeah. We should all just coordinate that and then the visitors will be super freaked out. Yeah. It'd be great. It'd be great. Because we woke up, we walk out and do what we did the week before and we come back. And yeah. Kind of a burden taken off your shoulder. Right. It should be, right? Um so all these words do more than just communicate information they actually perform actions they're doing something um and with that it's one of those things that uh as a pastor when i was uh ordained i took on uh certain duties and responsibilities and i swore to them i swore to uphold them and to do them you know i will with the help of god and it's one of those things you hold somebody to their word right uh it's like uh if if i was to uh, let's say I, I swore, <clears throat> I took an oath uh, to, to um, uphold the word of God as the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. And I also took a, 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 a upheld an oath to um, abide by um, the, uh, the book of Concord as the inspiration, as, as not, not the inspiration, the true interpretation of the word of God, right? So it's one of those things, if I told y'all, Something along the lines of, eh, we don't need to worry about the Book of Concord. It's an old book. 
doesn't have any relevance for us today. You probably say, oh, pastor, but you promised, right? You promised to uphold that as the true interpretation of Scripture. It'd be the same thing if I was to say, yeah, you don't have to worry about that little part in the Bible. doesn't really matter anyways. You go, oh, pastor, you promised, right? It's the Word of God. You can't just go back on that, right? Uh, and the same, same thing, like, I also promised to pray for people and to... Uh, to go see people when they're sick or in the hospital. And if I just don't do any of that, you have every right to come and say, Pastor, you're not fulfilling the oath you swore in your ordination. You need to go see so-and-so because they're in the hospital. You, know, you need to go see so-and-so because they're sick. Something like that. Right? Somebody in the congregation need to hold you accountable. Absolutely. Absolutely. You, you really need to hold... Any, any congregation needs to hold a pastor accountable to the things they promise to do, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so on to the next one. Read Romans 3, verses 21 through 26. So let's go to Romans 3. We'll probably get done with this for a decent amount of time. Romans 3, verses 21 through 26. Who would like to read that for us? 21 through 26. Mm -hmm. I'll go ahead. But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. All right, so uh, when and why did God declare all sinners righteous? So let's just start. That's a big question, maybe a tough question. Let's begin with when. When did God declare all sinners righteous? The redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Okay. I put it the crucifixion. Propitiation by his blood. So, crucifixion. I think it's safe to say crucifixion. Does anybody else have anything they want to say about that, though? Yeah, the resurrection. I was, right, yeah, yeah, was going to say yeah. right after that's the resurrection. Say so hand in hand. Yeah, right. You can't just, just like you can't talk about righteousness without salvation, you can't talk about the crucifixion without the resurrection. Right? They both go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. Yeah. Um, uh, so, y'all would say the crucifixion, death, and resurrection of Christ is where, is where he, uh, is was when God declares all sinners righteous. What about what about the folks in the Old Testament? What about the Old Testament? Yeah. What about the Old Testament saints? What about them? Were they never declared righteous? They they were. They were through faith in the promise. <laughs> they were what? Righteous. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, that's very okay. Yeah. This is this is the big. This can turn into a big debate. You know, it's like, what about the Old Testament saints? What did they do? Were they justified? 
what happened? I mean, uh, well, I, I think the people in the Old Testament had faith that the re- the crucifixion and the resurrection were going to happen. Right, that, and, and that they, they would be justified. That, and that when that did happen, yes, that is the fulfillment of that promise. Right, and we, we, we see in Hebrews that all the sacrificial uh, laws in the Old Testament, the ceremonial laws, in Hebrews it says that, that the, the blood of bulls and goats cannot wash away sin. Right? But that these were a foreshadowing of the sacrifice that was to come in the Messiah, uh, that is Christ. Um, but uh, that's, that's still a... But the faith comes first. That's right. You, you are not justified apart from faith. Right? That's why God, in many times with the prophets, hated the sacrifices of the people because they were done without faith. They didn't trust the promise. They just did it because it was just, oh, this is what we do. We offer this. Sure, yeah, they made, they made the doing an idol. Right? Uh, they turned the law into an idol as opposed to something that must be fulfilled by God. by God himself, right? Something that would be fulfilled by him. Um, I, do, I do like to point out this. I do like to make this little diagram, though, is that you have, let's just say you have a timeline, right? This is like the history of the world. So if this is what, creation, then here's uh, the second coming of Christ. Um, and in between here, you have all the things that go on in the world. I mean, somewhere, maybe like right here is the fall, <laughs> right? Like right there is the fall. And then, so then you have all the other events going on and you have Noah and you have Moses and you have, uh, oh, you have Abraham, you have David, right? And you go on and on and on and on and on until you get to the cross, and then after that, you have everything else going on all the way until the last day. And uh, with that, the Old Testament saints were always looking forward mm-hmm. to the fulfillment of the promise and the covenant. Uh, and then we... They had, they had the covenant, though. That's, that's, that's exactly right. And anybody who believed was grafted in as well. You see that elsewhere in the... Old Testament, they're grafted in by faith for sure. Um, but you also have like, so then here's us somewhere, right? And we're looking back as well, but we're also looking forward mm-hmm. to the second coming. But it all, like, that's like the crux. It's kind of a nice way to put it because crux means cross, right? That's where it all falls into place right there is the cross of Christ. Um, and uh, I could go more, but we're running late on time. I'll, I'll touch on other stuff later. It's, um, and I don't want to confuse anybody, but the Old Testament saints surely were saved by faith, right? Or by grace through faith. Well, they didn't have the, uh, didn't have the law until Moses was there. Yeah, so that's true. So. But they still had the promise. They, they still had the promise because as soon as... As soon as the serpent, as soon as Satan in the form of a serpent uh, tempted and caused and caused Eve, caused Adam and Eve to fall into sin, what's the first thing that God does? He curses Satan, and then he makes a promise. 
that the seed of the woman will crush your head and you will bruise his heel, that in his suffering you will die, Satan, right? So that's the promise they were holding on to. You're right, they didn't have the law until Moses, but they had the promise well before that, well before that. Um, just the law in Moses was more fleshed out to show, and we'll see in Romans he talks about that, the law was given to show just how deep our sin really is, right? On so on that that was one part of it for sure. Okay, so God declares all sinners righteous in the crucifixion, death, and resurrection of Christ. Why? Because He wants us with Him in heaven. Yeah. Why? Because He loves us. Yeah, He loves us, right? We heard, we heard this last uh, Sunday, right? Uh, for God so loved the world. And, and I didn't touch on it in the, uh, I didn't touch, touch on it in the sermon, but when you read that, a lot of people read that as like God so loved, like he loved us so much. But what, what, what really is telling about that is that in the Greek, it really means God loved us in this way. He loved us in, he, he loved us so, just so that he sent his only son to die for us, right? That's how he shows his love. It's not about how much he loves us. He loves us a lot. I mean, and it shows us, it shows us how much he loves us in how he shows his love by sending his son to die for us. Right? It goes back to action again. That's right. Love is an action. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so, and therefore, if it's all about Jesus, right, if it's all about Christ, through what means are the benefits of this declaration offered to you? What are the means by which you receive the grace of God? The grace. Baptism. Baptism. Yeah. The sacraments. The word and the sacrament, right? You get, you get, uh, you get the word preached. Uh, you get baptism, which is the word and the water come together. Um, you get Holy Communion, the bread and the wine with the word that Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood. And also, and I know I, I touch on this, I'm trying to soften some of y'all up into thinking that there might maybe be three sacraments. That, uh, because our small catechism actually talks about that, that one of, the, one of the means of grace, at least, you don't want to call it a sacrament, call it a means by which you receive grace, is holy absolution. Right? You confess your sins, and then the pastor tells you, you're forgiven. In the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins. It is a means by which God's grace is received. Okay, uh, And that is the word, right? In action as, as well. Um, all right. To keep on going here, because we're running out of time. We're already out of time, but we're almost done. So let's just push through. The judge... Huh? We're excited. Good. <laughs> Justification is an exciting thing. I'll tell you what. The judge, uh, the judge illustration demonstrates how foolish it is to view the righteousness of God and the gospel as abstract ideas or concepts. You know, just like thought experiments, right? Uh, righteousness and the gospel are realities that are physical and personal in Jesus Christ. God demonstrates the real tangible and personal character of his righteousness through acts of mercy. The central acts of this righteousness are the real 
physical and personal life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins by which God declares you and all sinners not guilty. Paul calls this righteous saving action of God the gospel. Uh, the verb used with righteousness of God is significant, apocalyptai, being revealed, right? Um, the apocalyptic, that's where we get that word, right? Apocalyptic end-time deliverance has come in Christ and is now being revealed and offered in the gospel. That deliverance expected at the end of time has come in time and is now present, right? So we... We live in a time of now and not yet, right? The promises of God are delivered to you right now, and yet they're still yet to come in their fullness. We live in this paradoxical time. So look at the word apocalyptic in the glossary, page 80. Um, so apocalyptic, Greek for reveal, apocalyptic... Uh, apocalyptic literature describes visions of heavenly mysteries, often about the latter days and the end time judgment in order to offer hope of victory for God's people. And we saw last time when we were going through Pastor Wolfmuller's book, As American Christianity Failed, he talked about the book of Revelation, which actually um, in Greek is Apocalypsis Ioannou, so the revelation of John, the revealing of to John, right? So that part is that that's what we have there. It's the revealing of things. And in Pastor Wolfmuller's book, he talked about how Revelation. Notice how there are different scenes where one moment you'll be on earth and the next you'll be in heaven. You'll see these different scenes playing out where all this chaos is happening on earth, and yet. In the next moment, he's transported to the heavenly throne room, and he sees that Christ is on the throne. That um, that the earthly realities don't always reflect the heavenly ones, right? So as bad as things can get, it's not so bad to knock Christ off the throne of God, right? Think of it that way. And that's what apocalyptic uh, um, works uh, the, the apocalypse of John, uh, you see it in Ezekiel and Daniel. That's apocalyptic uh, writings as well. Um, so how does this special word demonstrate the dynamic and the urgent nature of the gospel? What, what is revealing about the gospel, I guess I could say? I put that we need to be prepared at all times. Prepared for for what? The end, the coming of Christ. Sure. Okay. Um, okay. Absolutely. We always need to be ready for that. Um, we don't live enough like today or tomorrow might be the last day. Right? We should always be ready for it. Um, anybody else have anything? How the special word uh, apocalyptic demonstrates the dynamic and the urgent nature of the gospel? Well, somewhere it says, today is the day of salvation. Mm -hmm. And you can look at the second coming of Christ, but I may die today. That's exactly right. It's, yeah. That's pretty urgent. 
It's pretty urgent, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, never, never just put things off like salvation, right? <laughs> it's very, very urgent. Um, yeah. Um, anybody else have any thoughts on that? So, what what does the gospel reveal? Um, it reveals and bestows a heavenly a heavenly mystery that the world doesn't understand. The world will look out and what's going on, depending on who you ask, right? You'll see all this stuff going on in, um, you know, schools and the public square and politics and all this stuff. And you'll say, it's just horrible. But um, the gospel tells us that we have been saved by grace through faith. That no matter what the world does, they can't take that away from us, right? Neither height nor depth nor angels, nor demons, nor powers, nor principality. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, right? That these things, while they are a cross to bear, they are hard to get through. They're not impossible because the gospel tells us that we have nothing to fear. We don't even need to fear death. It's the worst thing we could ever happen to us is to die. And even that's been taken care of, right? So with that, the world doesn't understand it, but we, by faith, do. Uh, the faith that is given to us is a free gift, and that daily helps us in the struggles caused by sin. Struggles to despair at what's going on, or struggles to think, hey, maybe I could join in on some of this stuff. Right? Um, it's God's, uh, God's end-time judgment against our sin in Christ helps us know there's an end, and for those who are faithful, it will be a great one. Right? It'll be the best possible outcome ever. Um, that that in the end, judgment will come. You know, we shouldn't be afraid of it being called Judgment Day, because for us in Christ, that judgment will be a verdict of not guilty. That's right, and we have that now, right? So um, through faith. Let's just push on to the end here. Through faith, last part. Three times in chapter 1, verses 16 through 17 of Romans, Paul reveals the crucial role of faith in receiving salvation. First, in 116, he writes that salvation is for everyone who believes. Believing is the way of receiving salvation, even for the Jew. He says to, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Uh, second, Paul stresses this role of faith through an odd phrase in uh, verse 17, through faith for faith. The righteousness of God can be seen only with faith, through faith, and this same righteousness of God creates and nurtures faith. That's the for faith part, right? So we can only be seen with faith, and the same righteousness of God creates and nurtures faith, okay? Think back to the earlier example of a man standing before the judge. Before the judge makes his pronouncement, the man can only experience doubt and anticipation. He may imagine himself not guilty and even declare himself not guilty. But his imagination and words have no power. He can't trust them. The moment the judge pronounces not guilty, these words... Um, these words... <coughs> these words... Um, um, 
excuse me, these words enable the man to believe. The judge's words have the power to create faith. By himself, the man is utterly powerless. The judge's powerful words cause him to believe. Third, Paul quotes Habakkuk 2.4 and understands it in the following manner. The one who is righteous by faith will live. By faith describes righteous and not how one will live. Uh, in other words, this verse emphasizes that righteousness comes from God through faith. Having received righteousness by faith, we live free from condemnation. All right. Um, in view of Paul's teaching about the power of gospel, of the power of the gospel, where has your faith come from? Yeah, and hearing the word. Yeah, and the Holy Spirit is. Yeah, he's God, right? And the word is from God, right? Yeah, the word. Yeah, the, yeah, the word was made flesh. That's right. Yeah, the incarnate word of Christ. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, it's all from God. It's all a free gift. God created your faith through the gospel, right? And um, you can consider the judge and his words above, that, that apart from that, we can think to ourselves, oh, I'm not that bad. Oh, I didn't do anything that was too wrong. I'm basically a good person. But that doesn't mean anything. Uh, apart from God saying to you, your sins are forgiven. That's what matters, right? And that's what creates faith to say, I'm free. I'm free from my sin and condemnation, and therefore I will now actually live. Whereas before I was just walking, a dead man walking, basically, right? So, last question. How might Paul's teaching affect the way that you share the gospel with others? I put it's going to help me not think of me mm. helping somebody else come to Christ or, or or something like that by giving testimony or whatever. Great. Great. The Holy Spirit will and God and Jesus Christ will do that. Right. We'll do that. Yeah. The efficacy of the word, as we say, the word is enough to make that happen. That's a great way to, to see it. Anybody else have something for that? How might it affect the way that you share the gospel with others? Do I put anything? But it gives me faith that I'll be able to share the word of God because the Holy Spirit is giving me the information to say. Yeah. It's not me. It's the Holy Spirit using me to share the word. Yeah. To share, yeah, God's, God's word with someone else. Absolutely. Um, doesn't that take a load off? <laughs> doesn't, doesn't that take a load off when you say, hey, the Word is going to do the work. It just We're just called to speak it. And we're not really called to worry about whether or not we said things perfectly or whether or not that person believes we hand it over to God. It's, 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 it's in His hands that... that um, it is a load off when you. It's 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 like one of my uh, one of my old pastors who's who's now um, resting in Christ. He he said in a sermon one time, and I'll never forget it. He said, um, 
if the gospel, he said it in such a way that I feel like I need to clean it up a little bit because he said, if the gospel can't change somebody's mind, which I would say, if the gospel is not, if the gospel isn't what's, if the gospel's not enough for somebody, right? Nothing is. Yeah. Right? Nothing is. That won't reach into yeah. beyond hope. That 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 if you speak to when someone is hurting and in a moment it's like we can talk on another class about the proper distinction between law and gospel, but when I was going through seminary, we were taught there's a law moment and there's a gospel and, and there's a gospel moment to be had with people. If someone is self-justifying for whatever reason, that's a moment for law. It's like, no, 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 you need to come to church, or no, 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 you shouldn't have done that, or whatever. You need to do this, you don't don't do that. That's a time for law. But when someone is hurting, and when they're weighed down by their sin, that's not a time for law. That's a time for gospel. That's a time to say, you're forgiven. I forgive you. Or Christ has died for you. He forgives you, right? And yet, if someone just keeps saying, no, 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 you don't understand. I mean, you just, what do you do? You keep saying the gospel. <laughs> you keep saying it, because otherwise, because by no other way are they going to actually come to faith. Um, and on some level, that's not to say we shouldn't, we shouldn't be well-versed in ways of communicating. But at the same time, it's really not about how eloquent we are. Um, it's not about how well thought our, the arguments are. We're not trying to argue someone into faith, but simply to be ready to speak the word when we're supposed to. And just let God do the work through the Holy Spirit. You know, let, let the Holy Spirit do the work that he's promised to do through that word. And it's amazing what happens, you know? It's amazing. So... Uh, people can't come to faith in the gospel until it's proclaimed. Think about that, too. People aren't just going to all of a sudden one day realize, oh, I believe in Jesus, without anybody telling them about what Jesus has done for them. How are they supposed to know unless someone tells them? And, and, and you know, how, how are they supposed to have someone to preach to them unless they're sent, right? Paul talks about that later on in Romans. So I pray that God would grant us boldness to speak the truth. And to trust that the word is enough. It is enough. Right? The gospel is enough because the gospel is the power for salvation. The power of God for salvation to all who believe. Right? All right. Any closing thoughts, comments, questions before we uh, end tonight? Well, you can also get the gospel by reading the Bible. Yeah. Um, I would say, though, it probably helps to have somebody... Uh, if you're not a believer and you're just reading the Bible, um, it's not that they can't come to faith. It's just that it helps a lot more when somebody else is actually talking to them about it. Because it's like the Ethiopian eunuch who's reading that passage from Isaiah, and he's like, I don't, I don't understand this. What does this mean? And then Philip comes and he explains it to him. Right? He tells him that's about baptism. Yeah. So, and that that was something we talked about this morning. Uh, Tim, Tim was talking about how people who don't understand Romans or the Christian faith can read Romans and read it in a completely different way than what was intended. And that's why you need somebody else to kind of help guide them along sometimes. And I said, 
Absolutely. I needed tons of professors to help me at the seminary. <laughs> you know, I did not understand everything by myself in reading it. I needed help. You know, we all we all need help from other people. Uh, but we as Christians in our daily lives, because we have the Holy Spirit, we certainly are uh, benefited tremendously by reading that gospel over and over and over and over again, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it can do nothing but help us. It's like gas for our fuel. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's fuel. It's a gas tank for our to replenish us and keep us going. It's like, um, I'll close with this. I'll close with this. It's like... Um, we talked about one time in uh, on one of our other classes, I think it was the first one I did when I got here, um, Grace Upon Grace, John Kleinig. He talked about how uh, the Bible talks about us as jars of clay, right? And that God has hidden something precious in these seemingly ordinary things, right? And he likens it to a lamp. And with the lamp, you don't see... Unlike a candle, a candle will burn down and down. You see it going down and down. Uh, But a lamp will do something different. When it's running low on fuel, when it's running low on the oil, it starts to grow dim, right? Until it just all of a sudden goes out. And you won't know until it goes out. So the oil for us is God's word. It is is the spirit-filled word that the more that we read it, the more that we... um, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest it, the more we are filled so that flame will continue to burn bright. Right? So think of it that way, too. It's, just, it's similar to what you said about the gas tank, but I like, I like the lamps. <laughs> it's nice. Oil instead of gas. <laughs> yeah, right. Oil and gas. Let's just, let's just combine them all together. We're in Texas. Why not? Um, all right. So um, Romans 117b serves as an outline for chapters 1 through 8 of the epistle. Chapters 1 through 4 tell us that the only righteous person is the one who is righteous by faith. Chapters 5 through 8 describe the life that the one who is righteous by faith actually lives. So something to look forward to there. Words to remember. Uh, for in the gospel, uh, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Romans 1.17. For next time, uh, to prepare for the next session, read Romans 1, 18 through, 30, through 32. 1, 18 through 32. And then fill out those uh, discussion questions. And we'll have another di- good discussion next week, all right? All right, well, for sake of time, we'll just go ahead and close. And how about let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. 